Daniel, for those uh, trying to find it, it's uh, towards the middle. It's in that part of the Bible where the super godly parents go to name their children. (laughs) If you just start from the left side, move all the way through the Old Testament, you know, the godly parents might choose Joshua or David. Moving up the ladder, you might get to the really godly parents, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those major prophets. The super godly might use Amos. (laughs) But when I get to the nursery to drop my kids off and I see some Obadiahs and Haggai's hanging at the Cheerios bar, that's when you've gotten to elite godly parents. So if you've gone to the elite godly parent part of the Old Testament, you went too far, just back it up a few notches and reside with the rest of us godly people in the book of Daniel. By the way, Gen Z parents, uh, Bob, Tom, Ed, Bill, still good names, solid picks. You know, Stone, Rock, Pebble, I know those are cool right now, but um, you know, there's some good, good short ones out there still. Daniel chapter 1, and uh, these songs really did lead us to get the heart behind what's happening in Daniel as, as he put together a history of his life in a foreign land. Because the heart behind Daniel is how do God's people bring him praise in exile? Sort of like we just sang. You know, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are by my side, when for the people of God at the time of Daniel in exile, well, we're, we're no longer walking with God. We no longer have the temple. We're no longer in God's holy city. Are we still God's holy people? How could we possibly sing the truth of Psalm 23? But we can look back and say we can sing it because God dwells with us in us. So you can sing from a place of exile. You are by my side. When you understand that we have Christ with us because we have Christ in us and we are in Christ. But the tone of Daniel is is not that. It is almost like if you've ever um, read the infamous Psalm 137. When it begins, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, we hung up our lyres and there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mocking saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then the question's asked by this psalmist. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So welcome to Daniel. We're going back in time to um, transition between the 7th and 6th century BC. Where world powers like Assyria and Egypt are on the decline. In the Near East. 
and Babylon is rising, and the Greeks, those sneaky Greeks, are going to sneak up on everybody eventually. But as for Israel, they are getting pummeled. The ten northern tribes were conquered by Assyria in 722 BC and carried away, and then for the last hundred years, Judah has been warned by the prophets of God that Babylon is coming for them. It's about 605 BC when Daniel experiences what happens in chapter 1, and towards the end of his life, 535 BC, it's believed, he'll write it down, encapsulating his time in exile under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why there will be no getting into, did Daniel really write Daniel and when did he write it? Because Jesus says that Daniel wrote it. And if Jesus quotes Daniel, that's all I need. Disclaimer, as we jump in, normally at this point, I would read the entirety of a passage we're going to study, but when going through Daniel for the next few months, I'm not going to do it that way. I'll open us up with maybe the first verse or two, because in an attempt to go according to the narrative, one chapter at a time, these are pictures that Daniel, later in life, puts together to tell a story of God's protection and redemption of his people in a foreign land according to God's own doing, that he begins each chapter with sort of a summary, a timestamp using the name of a king at a certain time, at a certain place. And so I'll read those opening lines and that's how the action will unfold and we'll go through it together so there is a little bit of a drama we'll say in the text of course in the amount of time I just read all this you probably could have read chapter one yourself and there goes the plot that being said following the action from your seat puts an emphasis on one thing in particular and I say this with all love and encouragement as your teaching shepherd to bring your Bible to church because we're going to cover a lot of ground each morning we preach through this not one or two verses that you can kind of just let lodge you're going to follow along in real time with me so if you didn't bring your Bible today we got you covered there should be one in a seat in front of you but that will really help the process of following the action for yourself in your seat. And, and the reason we do that is part of our values of a church. Uh, one of them is we are a word-centered church, which means we want to put the emphasis on what God has to say to you each week from the word, not necessarily what I have to say. Uh, in the day and age we're in, um, we believe the emphasis of teaching the word of God should be a show and tell. As in, I show you what's here, and then I tell you what it means, which goes against the grain of a lot of popular preaching today, which is a show, very little tell. And that's not what we're here to do. There is no show up here. It's, I want to show you the text, and then I want to tell you what it means so that you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, seeing it for yourself right in front of you. It also helps you check my work. Because if you have your Bible open and you hear something, you're like, what? You can just look right down. It's kind of the cheat sheet. Not that I'm encouraging cheating young children. So, that being said, let's read the first two verses of Daniel 1. And we will jump into the action of God's reign over kingdoms. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. And we ask, God, that you would help this word to endure in our hearts today. Let's talk about God's reign over kingdoms. These first two verses, again, Daniel compiling this later in his life, is particular with how he wants to arrange the story of his life. All of this is him looking back and then saying years later, decades later, how do I want to encourage God's people to be more faithful to their God so that they could be more fruitful for their God, even when in exile? So let's see how he sets up our understanding or approach to Daniel in those first two verses. And this is the way that the people of God should look at their lives. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Friends, this is the horizontal line of history that we all read from. You've got a who, what, when, where, why, but not necessarily a how. We can report the facts. Who? King Nebuchadnezzar. Who was King Nebuchadnezzar? He was the king of Babylon, approximately 605 to 562 BC. That's when he reigned. What? He besieged. That word besieged means to encircle. So this is not necessarily the deportation yet in 605. This is him encircling Judah, the remaining kingdom, where Jerusalem was, what Psalm 137 was lamenting. How can God's people be taken away from Zion, God's city? When? Well, during the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, because Israel's out. They've been conquered, as in the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria took him over. Babylon took over Assyria. Babylon is on the rise and this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and surrounds it. Now, Jehoiakim isn't a great dude. My apologies if you're offended I'm calling people in the Bible dudes. Jehoiakim, um, here's the summary of his life in 2 Kings 23, 36 to 37. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And here's, here's it. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So there's your summary of this Jehoiakim. He was not a godly man. He did not trust in Yahweh's protection. Like many of the kings before him, he was always looking for someone else around to bail Judah or Jerusalem or Israel out. Maybe Egypt will come and help us. Maybe I can make some alliance with a foreign power to come and protect us. But certainly I'm not going to heed the word of the prophets that keep saying, tell your people to open their Bibles and repent 
and go back to the Word of God. And while you're doing that, you're going to be taken away and go. I'll protect you while you're in exile. Don't stay, because if you stay, you're going to get wiped out. And guys like Jehoiakim didn't listen. Imagine that. People not listening to what God tells them to do. So hard to relate. But the consequences for a king of Judah have corporate effects. The sin of this leader would lead to the deportation of all the people left in Judah. Now this was a a three-wave deportation. It started in 605, continued in 597, and then was completed in 586 when the entire city was razed. This is the first wave of that. Who, what, when, why? Well, this is the culmination of years of disobedience for God's people. Now that, oh yeah, and then if you're wondering, you know, how far is Jerusalem from Babylon? Um, 900 miles as the crow flies. So um, imagine us getting deported from, uh, put in exile from this wonderful town of Hickory, life well-crafted, and our, our um, tyrant, kings from Kansas City came and said, your barbecue's the cheap stuff. Come and have KC barbecue with us. And we all up and had to pack our bags and as a team walk all the way to Kansas City. It's about 900 miles. So there you go. That's along the world history timeline. But see, what's instructive for us at the beginning of Daniel is what comes in the next verse. This is the how. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You can't miss that at the beginning of this story. It sets up everything. There's Daniel's explanation for the who, what, when in verse 1. And then there is the biblical story, uh, or the redemptive story. Or as many of us have seen, all caps, H-I-S, It's his story. There is world history. And these facts and figures from Daniel 1.1, you can cross-check in secular sources. But you know what will never turn up in that explanation? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And that's the way God's people have always seen how history goes. There is what we see along the earthly timeline. But then we look up and say, yes, but here is what God was doing. That explains the how. Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful as he was, wasn't carrying off God's people without God's permission. And this is Daniel the writer showing his hand early of how he's going to explain his 70 years in exile. And in showing his hand, he's uplifting the mighty hand of God. None of the rest of these 12 chapters is happening outside of The Lord gave. So friend, think about your own life. How do you tell your story? You know, one of the clear signs that you might be born again, that you might be in Christ, that your eyes have been opened, is that when people ask your story, you have a story below the line and above the line. You can tell them, I was born here, here was my parents, and you can go on and on and on about where you lived and what you did and where you went, but do you have verse 2? Here's what God was doing all along. I remember meeting a guy months ago talking about that, and that was my question for him. Where was God in all of this? 
That's a good sign. God has opened your eyes to see and your ears to hear is if you truly can look at your life, your testimony, and not give generic credence to the activity of the Almighty. You know, I was in this, uh, you know, in my life, I was driving my Honda Civic through Colorado on the way to LA in the Great Migration to Hollywood and almost got taken out somewhere along the Rockies by some big boulder, swerved out of the way. And I could say, you know, there was God's hand protecting Adam, sure. But the particulars of my true testimony is, when did God come into my life by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a lost sinner became a saved saint? That's the real story. And that's what's set up here. That it is God's reign that is triumphant over all of history. In fact, you can write this down. Here's the main point of the book of Daniel. I hope you stick around for the rest. The God of heaven reigns. It's right there in the title of your notes. Even as we see first off in proving that point, God reigns over kingdoms. Before we get down to the granular and the weeds of your life, how about this? God reigns over entire kingdoms moving across the planet. I hope that gives you encouragement today. This book is about the universal sovereignty of God. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. One of my favorite summary statements from another uh, preacher is, this is God's survival manual for the saints. Because when you make the connection, if God is really in control of kingdoms, let alone my life, if he's in control, then I can have courage. If he ain't in control, what ground do I have to stand on for any courageous convictions in today's culture? If he's not, my feet would be firmly planted in the air if God's not in control. If he's not absolutely sovereign over all kingdoms. And that's what Daniel comes right out of the gates with swinging in verse 2. Yes, there is this pagan king trying to expand his kingdom, overtaking a rotten king of Judah's own, Jehoiakim, and none of that's happening if the Lord doesn't give Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The besieging of Judah in verse 1, yes, that's Nebuchadnezzar's idea. But the allowing of the people of God to be taken away, that was God's plan. He predicted it, he promises, and what God promises comes to pass. You might say, where was this promise? Turning your Bibles back to Leviticus 26. <gasps> More moths. It really was promised that this was going to happen. Now, it doesn't give the names and places and people, except for God's people. Leviticus 26 the first generation of those brought out of slavery in Egypt, delivered to the, going to the promised land, I should say, the first generation. And God lays it out for him. Look, I took care of you. I redeemed you. Leviticus 25, 55. Israel are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uses Yahweh, personal God, covenant-keeping God, 
Steadfast love of the Lord, we talked about last week. He is their good father. They are his children. And then Leviticus 26, which we won't get into all of today, cuts it really straight. There's blessings for obedience, and there is punishment for disobedience. Two ways. You know, praise God for the simplicity of the Bible. There's always just two ways, two paths. This is, in real time, in the time of Israel, God's plan. I've given you my law, Israel. Here's everything I could do for you already and what I will still do for you. And if you read Leviticus 26, 1 through 12, you can't help, or 1 through 13, I should say, you can't help have imagery of Eden evoked. This is your second chance, humanity. Why do I say Eden? Because there's, there's, there's this lush description of a good life, of land increasing, being fruitful and multiplying, trees with fruit, grape harvests, sowing and reaping, and eating it and dwelling securely. No harmful beasts, no swords, no enemies. Verse 9, I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Is that Genesis enough for you? This is, a, this is taking us back. But here's the high point, verse 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. That's his promise. Now here's the flip side. Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. Notice those commandments are rooted in the covenant of God. I am your God. I brought you out. I rescued you. I redeemed you. What more could I do for you? But if you're going to stiff arm me or your soul abhors the fact that I am your God who saved you, and you don't like that plan, which you're like, who wouldn't like that plan? It's not just disobedience isn't just like, ah, I forgot. If your soul abhors me, this is what I'll do. And then you can read the rest of Leviticus 26 for yourself. But verse 33 summarizes why we find ourselves in Daniel 1-2 being carried away. God says, I will scatter you among the nations. This is six to seven hundred years before it happens. God says to Israel, if you break all this, your soul abhors me. You don't want none of my protection, none of my love, none of my care. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. God is keeping his promise, isn't he? Which in this case, isn't the type of promise we write hit songs about, is it? When's the last hit song about God's faithfulness to punish our disobedience so that we would turn back to him? Do you have a category, Christian, for God's severe faithfulness in your life? I know we always like to say God is faithful and it's on the back end 
of seeing God's wonderful hand at work in our lives and we rejoice over it. And he, he did restore it all. He gave me all the promises. But what Daniel is telling us about here at the beginning and echoing Leviticus 26 and, um, and, and they, they didn't get it in Leviticus 26 in that first generation because you can read Deuteronomy 28 and the next generation is told the same thing about the blessings of obedience and the punishment for disobedience. God is patient. But we tend to think of God only in his positive faithfulness, don't we? The blessings of obedience, the outpourings of things we call good. But what about when God is faithful to his warnings to you? Can you think of a time in your life where you have been thankful for God's warnings to you? And even the accompanying consequences that humbled you to turn back to him. See, that's what happens, friends, when you preach the whole counsel of God. Not just like the sunshine and rainbow stuff. These are dark days. But these are still God's days. And these are still the days that God brought his promises to pass. It wasn't just, um, I mean, this was, this was everything Leviticus promised. This was utter wipeout by 586. This, this first wave in 605. Uh, Daniel goes on to say, down to the details, because God is always in the details. Um, he brought the vessels out of the house of God, placed them in his treasury. Verse 2. What, what's that all about? Why should we care about the vessels? Why that detail? Well, because um, to conquer a kingdom is not just to have a political victory. It's to say that your God is greater than their God. It's one and the same. It's corporate solidarity. When you watch the Olympics and an American sprinter loses to a Jamaican sprinter, like we always do, you can't, they're just super fast. Ah, we lost. Jamaican's sprinter, faster than our sprinter. There's a corporate sense of loss, but then there's the next Olympic hope, we'll be the fastest. USA, as I sit on my couch doing nothing, run, man, run, faster. As I run to the fridge. There's corporate solidarity here. That's what this vessels, because these vessels of the treasury of his God, end of verse two, shows that we didn't just wipe them out Our God wiped them out. You even see this, we won't go there, but 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 7. What happened when the Philistines thought they won by getting the ark and bringing it to the house of their God, Dagon? He ended up chopped up, face on the floor, a God in the presence of the ark. Because they thought they won through and through, but their God did not conquer Israel's God. No God has ever conquered Israel's God. Daniel wants to paint this picture really bleak that these Babylonian pagans think they have had an utter victory. Yet, verse 2, the Lord gave. He gave the whole thing. He did everything he said he would do for Israel's unrepentant, unchanging, stiff-necked disobedience to him for all those years. Uh, then there's some personal stuff, the rest of this first section, three to seven. This is really uh, moves from the focus 
to this God that reigns over kingdoms to um, when a kingdom is conquered by another king, a king is going to want to subjugate its peoples, but he doesn't start at the top. I mean, he just, if you read... um, Back in 2 Kings 24 and 25, Zedekiah, his leaders are wiped out. Zedekiah, evil king, his eyes are poked out, and then he's carried off into captivity. Yeah, you could take care of those guys pretty quick, but a savvy king is going to do what Nebuchadnezzar does, which is to say, if my empire is going to have no end, I'm not just going to wipe out all the good, able bodies who could be my future generations of leaders. I'm going to brainwash them to work for me. So he starts with, in verse 3, the cream of the crop. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his right-hand man, to bring some of the people of the royal family and nobility. Which particular people? The youths. Why? Because he's going to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. So that he can send them out to the far edges of his empire that's expanding. And they could work for him in a few years. Why start over, right? This is a shrewd move that was common in the ancient Near East. If you're going to have the biggest kingdom, you can't just wait to recruit more soldiers of your own for them to grow up. Take the ones you already have on your hands from the other nations and indoctrinate them. And so that's what three to seven is about. He takes the cream of the crop, or if we want to talk about it in our terms today, the influencers. Be careful about being an influencer. Some pagan king might find you on Instagram, young people. And if you're too influential, he's going to take you and use you for his purposes. But he was recruiting. This verse 4, the youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge. How would he know this? There would be some form, and this is also documented, uh, uh, in the history books. of uh, like It's like a combination of the SAT and Mr. Universe, all in one. For the 12 to 18 year olds, you know, to who's the best of the best here? Because that's who I'm going to pour my time and resources into. Uh, One theologian talking about uh, how this process went down wrote a line I liked. We get a clue of the uh, indoctrination standards when we examine ancient Mesopotamian art and note the well-muscled, full-bearded, luxuriantly curled hair of the warriors and kings. And I'm like, ah, I'm out, you know. So is John Crick. It's down to Curtis. Jerry Curl, work on it, the... The luxuriantly curled hair. But that's really what it was. It was, it was, we wanted the best of the best. We wanted them to look good. We wanted them to know what we know. And so the, the indoctrination kind of happened at three levels, and you see them right there in three consecutive verses. The first level was to change their mind through the literature and language. Immerse them in the Babylonian worldview thinking. So endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is just another way to talk about the Babylonians. Interchangeable. So it was, let's immerse them in our worldview by teaching them. Then verse 5, it moves from mind, we'll say, to the body. The king assigns a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And so now this is immerse them with what they ingest into their bodies. Get them liking living in the king's palace, eating the king's food and drinking the king's drink. And then the last level, and this is going to go on for three years, the end of verse 5 says, educated for three years, and at the end of that time, stand before the king. 
And then lastly, verse 6 and 7, it was to uh, change their identity, their, we'll call this mind, body, and soul. Why do I say that? Because 6 and 7, changing their name was to immerse them in their religion and, and introduce them to their gods. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so Daniel, instead of being God is my judge, now becomes Bel protects my life. And Bel was one of their pagan gods. So for those three years of indoctrination, when they're ringing the dinner bell, Daniel's hearing, Bel, to Shazar, Bel is your protector, Bel is your protector, Bel is your protector, not Yahweh is, or God is my judge. Hananiah went from being Yahweh is gracious to Shadrach under the command of Aku, which was their moon god. Meshach went to who is what god, or in a sense, who is like god. What is he like now to me? Or Mishael went to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. That same moon god of Shadrach, Meshach is saying, who is like Aku, the moon god. And then lastly, Azariah becomes Abednego. Yahweh has helped becomes servant of Nebo, the wisdom god. Why? Because keep saying that name over and over and over and over. I remember reading the story back in the 80s of... Um, Great manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Tommy Lasorda, legendary coach, gets this uh, kind of spindly, undersized pitcher that he sees potential in, but he just thought he was way too nice. And so he started calling Oral Hershiser Bulldog because he was hoping that by changing how he thought about himself, he would come up to the pitcher's mound with a little more gusto, a little more courage. And it worked. Cy Young winner, World Series winner. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. Though God reigns over all and has allowed it, here is this king trying to take the young and use them for his own purposes. A mind, body, and soul experience. Identity and allegiance. Why the young? You know, Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of youth is in their strength. There would be years of service ahead if this experiment works. Now, where does this hit home for us? Maybe already some of your minds are thinking about the day and age we live in, making some connections in your daily life. Perhaps as you think about this mind, body, and soul indoctrination, you know, if you're, if you're in the um, shoes of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what Daniel shows you so far is, though we are exiled in a foreign land, this ain't so bad, is it? Free education, it's all the rage these days. Good food, all you foodies out there. What's in a name? I mean, we pick them for the cool factor today, don't we? We're not really researching maybe the etymologies, that that should mean something. But I think this has something for us to talk about, think about, and talk about, you know, if we're going to be indoctrinated and overwhelmed, it's probably not going to be the way that Egypt just put Israel to work harsh, right? That's one way you could conquer another people. Just put them to work, be harsh with them, cut their rations, give them less straw and tell them to make more bricks. You could lead that way. But you could also be led to the slaughter by comfort. 
getting fattened up. It's essentially what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. What would have been uncomfortable for some of these Israelite youths? Nothing. Absolute comfort here. Unless it starts to cut against their convictions. So America in 2022, how uncomfortable are you? I'm talking about all that we have in our culture that makes life really comfortable and could blind us to ways we might be assimilating to a world we don't actually belong. What can we take away for us by way of implication from this opening Chaldean conditioning is that Babylon can be kind and therefore seductive. Marinate on that for a little bit. Let's move on to point number two, God reigns over kings. And that's section 8 through 16. Now we meet Daniel, and the focus of the story zooms in on the man himself. So here's all the offers of comfort. One writer said, Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. So what's Daniel going to do? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. That's what courageous convictions do. Right in the midst of being really comfortable. In an uncomfortable time for the rest of Judah. Either left and slaughtered back in their homeland 900 miles away. Or all the guys that didn't make the cut that are all probably out there making bricks for Nebuchadnezzar. It's bad for everybody except for these four guys here. And would that be enough to make Daniel soft? And those three words jump off the page. But Daniel resolved. It's a great word, resolved. Your version might say, set his heart on. Another way we say it today is, I settled it in my mind beforehand. And that's what Daniel did. He, he was going to draw a line that he would not cross. He resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, we don't get any commentary from Daniel, and it is his story on why he made that decision. First comes to mind would be obvious, the uh, dietary kosher laws. But we don't get anything in the white space about if that king's food was pork. So we can't necessarily say it was that. Uh, the king's wine, is he under the Nazarite vow? We don't know. Is it that, and this was a common practice then, that food and drink would have been offered to some of Nebuchadnezzar's idols before being served to those kids. We don't know. Could it just be that after all the other indoctrination of verses 3 to 7, at some point, Daniel said, they can change my name, change my education, change my address, but I'm done at this point. You can put me in Babylon, but you can't put it in me. 
Maybe that's what it was. This was the line he was going to draw. I'm done at this point, like Luther's moment at the Diet of Worms. It's not good to go against conscience when it's captive to the word of God. So here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. You draw a line and you don't cross it. You resolve. You make up your mind. You settle it in your heart in advance. And that's what Daniel did. And that's the contrast. Though there are kings and kingdoms, God reigns over those kings and God reigns over those kingdoms and God reigned over Daniel's heart. Second half of that verse, what's he do? Therefore, he asked. Hmm. Note, he didn't demand. Because courageous convictions don't have to be cantankerous complaining. Love you, but you don't have to do it. You can ask. When you're in a culture and you're swimming upstream and it's going against you, whatever it might be, and something in you rises up and you want to call it righteous anger and take your stand, like Daniel, dare to be a Daniel, dare to be something, is some old song. But you don't uh, have to be belligerent, right? That's what Daniel asks the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, there is no compromise there in his convictions. He has already resolved he's not going to do it. And I know some people live by the phrase, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Baloney. Be a witness not just to the God that you serve, but the way that he tells you to serve him. He's humble in this approach. He asks permission, even though in his mind he's already made up, I'll take whatever consequences I have to suffer. But he's being a witness even in his approach to this. Daniel comes to that chief, Ashpenaz, we know his name, respectfully asks, not demands. And um, what's the result? Here's God's reign over kings and those servants of the king. God gave, same phrase in verse 2, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Who's doing the work here again? God is. This is what Daniel wants you to see reading this 2,600 years later. God is reigning over the kingdoms that are moving around in verse 2, and he's reigning over the decisions of those in leadership here in verse 9. God gave Daniel favor. And again, back to the whole two timelines. How do you see your life and the way God is working in it? Verse 8, Daniel's saying, this is what I resolved to do. Along the history of my life, here's where I stood. And then just like in verse 2 and verse 1, playing together and telling us how our lives work, then in verse 9 he says, and here's what God did. God gave me favor and compassion in the sight of that chief. And everything turned out peachy, right? No. Look back at verse 10. It seems to me by the text that that chief of eunuchs was watching out for his own life. He actually doesn't get permission. How about that? 
Right? Because being a Christian, if we just do it the way Adam just said to do it. Don't be a cantankerous complainer, curmudgeon demanding your rights all the time. Be really nice and you'll get the favor of your boss. It don't always turn out that way immediately. Look at verse 10. This response, I fear my Lord the King who gave me the assignment to tell you what to eat and drink. And look, I'm just like the messenger. He's going to see that you're in a worse condition, and that'll get me in hot water. He's looking out for himself, because this chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, um, he doesn't really care about Daniel's diet, one way or the other. He's just doing what the boss told him, so cut him some slack. I'm preaching to myself every time I call customer service. This person isn't the boss, so cut them some slack. And that's essentially what this guy's doing. He's representative of the king. Daniel's not going to get in the presence of the king any sooner than those three years. So in the meantime, he answers to Ashpenaz, and Ashpenaz's answer is essentially no. And if you've ever saw that before in the text, he doesn't say, yeah, go right ahead. So verse 11, Daniel goes down the list. He goes to the steward, which is essentially to say the chef, the guy that's assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah 11. And verse 12, Daniel's asking for permission has a little more pluck to it. So we, we can be shrewd and how we might get a no from this person and then go to this person with a plan. Hey, listen up, chef. He doesn't say listen up. Um, how about we just set up a test? You feed your people with the 10 days what the king wants, give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And um, then, verse 13, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Notice he doesn't go for the whole enchilada right away. Hey, at the end of three years, I promise, this new fitness plan I'm on, it's got bennies. Like, you're going to see the results in just three years. No, he just goes like a little small request. Give me 10 days. Give me 10 days to just go all carrots and water. And then you can see with your own eyes. Now, check this out. As far as we know, this isn't some public drama. This is a private affair. This, this is just going to be this steward who's assigned to these guys. We don't get anything about it. Some big banquet hall and, you know, Sunday school stories want to make this like, here's Daniel and his friends pushing away from the table. I'll never eat the food. no. Who knows how they get their food? Maybe it's slid through the door, you know? And nobody else knows they're even doing this except for this chef. Because the point isn't to make this into the Daniel plan. Just put that out there. I'm all for being a good steward of our bodies, 100%. Not into trying to turn this into a new diet and way to live. Because the way to live is to be resolved to live for God. That's the punch. To get distracted on, you know, veggies only and water to drink. Sure, that might help. Last time I did like one of those water cleanse things, I ended up in the ER a week later, true story. <laughs> Turns out you shouldn't just cold turkey try to start chugging a gallon of water like on, on the hour. Dumb. But this is what's set up here. He gets no for an answer from the guy at the top. He goes down the list, asks the next guy. But all going back to the key verse, verse 9, God is giving Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of these guys. 
What's the principle here? Maybe I think it'd be fair to say Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Can you walk away from this section with at least that much? Proverbs 16, 7. It's played out. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord. What was pleasing to the Lord about Daniel's life? He was a man of courageous conviction. He was resolved. He had settled in his heart that God can make even your enemies to be at peace with you. The heavenly conclusion of this section is it is God who gives favor with people in power. And the earthly charge would be it's on you to align yourself with the way God expects his children to behave. God reigns over the kings. But that doesn't mean that we have right then to disobey those kings necessarily. Last section, God reigns over the kids. What about the kids? 17 to 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So unlike the last two sections, which starts on the earthly level and then goes up to the heavenly, Daniel flips it here in verse 17. First, he tells you that God is the one giving learning and skill. And alluding back to verse 4, all the literature and language of the Chaldeans, God is blessing their apprehension of it, their comprehension of it. And Daniel highlighted out of the other three. Why? Because Daniel is setting up the story for the rest of this whole book. His ability to know, uh, to interpret dreams and visions is not something that, oh, you know what? He was the most faithful to that vegetable diet, and that's why he was able to understand. His mind was really clear in its thinking, you know, like when you eat celery before bed because it has negative calories. No. God gave the learning and skill to the four youths, and Daniel writes, in particular, I was given a little extra understanding of visions and dreams. And you will hear Daniel say that about himself later. It ain't that I have some special thing. It's God who is in charge of this whole shebang. Now, verse 18, after you see what God is giving in 17, then you get the human side of it. At the end of those three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, so three years has gone by, they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar. The king speaks with them, and no one is like these four youths. I think Daniel wants to highlight that when the king speaks with them and calls them those pagan names, Daniel reiterates their God-given names. He refers to himself and his friends as these are the four youths that God is giving the understanding and learning to. Marduk ain't, Bel ain't, And Nebo, the god of wisdom, isn't responsible for all the success these four youths are having. These are God's youths. And therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, the king found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. They're the best of the best. And what I think we have to note here is, and this cuts against the grain of the boxes we like to keep God in, especially for how we think we've got to do it this exact way or else, you know, 
Everything's going to fall apart. If we even um, get a, a, a waft of the, the, the things being taught in schools these days. Um, in every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king inquired them, he found them better than magicians and enchanters. All oh, the language and literature of that pagan country, Chaldean, these guys for three years had to learn. And it didn't ruin them. They learned Sumerian, Akkadian, Aramaic languages. They learned the literature that came from those pagan people groups, including the Chaldean catechisms about mythologies and historiographies and astronomy and mathematics and medicine. And God gave them learning and skill and all of it. They didn't lose the convictions and courage they already possessed by what they believed about their God. And at the same time, simultaneously, they didn't have to move into a monastery, batten up the hatches, because pagan cultures come in, guard my ears. So be careful. Be careful what we might have such a strong preference for and may give our two cents about and how someone else is educating their kids as if we are Daniel the prophet knowing how that kid's going to turn out. Because as for me and my house, I've got to raise them. And you know the one thing I can't fail in? It's not what I teach them in math. It's the God I teach them about here. And I'm confident that if I get that right, all the apologetics in the world won't be able to overcome what they know about their God. Get that right. Get that right. Because that's what these guys had right. And they could still learn all the other stuff. The main emphasis here is on God's hand and reign over these kids. And as bleak as it looked, God was going to protect them. That's the picture Daniel wants to paint for these four youths, for his own life, and yes, for the people of God in exile for these 70 years. Wrap up, verse 21. You thought there was a throwaway verse like I did at first. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What? Why is that there? I mean, why wouldn't he just go in chronological order and say after the, you know, they find favor, hey, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Why is he packaging in this first chapter? Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel is putting an exclamation point on his life under the reign of Yahweh, not under the reign of all the kings that came in and went out during that time in exile. I know it's just a little bitty verse that sounds like history, but Daniel is saying no. From the beginning of the first day, they brought me in here, maybe in stocks, maybe not. You know what Daniel's telling you right out of the bat? I outlasted him. Because God was with me. Your life will not be known by the reign of the presidents you were under or a queen 
who outlasted six popes, 14 presidents, and at last count, 59 different starting quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns. Your life, like Daniel's, will matter not for what king or queen you lived under on earth. Your life will matter for the king you lived under who reigns from heaven. We may not outsmart the enemies of God. We may not outwit them. We certainly won't outshine them. But if you are in Christ today, you will outlast them. If you are in Christ today, you will outlast whatever opponent there is in your life or your children's life or your children's children if you are in Christ. That's how you last to the end. That's the perspective Daniel is giving. This is how it turned out at the end of his life. King Cyrus, 539, comes into power. Medo-Persia crushes Babylon. They start to rise. Cyrus says, I'm going to start letting the people go back. And Daniel is there to see it. Because God saw him through. What's the big takeaway from all that? I'll say it like this. There is no conceivable circumstance on this earth that makes it impossible for you to be faithful to God now and fruitful in serving him in the future. Do you have that conviction? I know times seem tough and getting worse. Do you have a conviction that there is no conceivable circumstance on this earth that can prohibit you from being faithful to God and fruitful for him in service? Probably not going to have it worse than Daniel or those in exile. Maybe we will. But what faith sees is what Daniel wrote. If he could do it because God gave, God gave, God gave, God gives me that same promise. It rests on me to believe that by faith. Who's on your throne today? If you're not in Christ, I, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this much about your life. You're not on this planet, in this time, in this wonderful little town, and in this church, this blip of a church. Been here 45 years. Grand scheme of things. And yet here you sit in that seat, not by accident. And what you are about to hear, because God has you here, is not by accident. It's by his grace. Trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what he has you here today to hear if you're not in Christ. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I don't need to be a prophet. I don't need to know what's going to happen 10 seconds from now. To know he has you here. He reigns over kingdoms rising and falling.
in kings who make decisions, in kids who find themselves in exile, and he reigns over you. He reigns over you. And he, in his grace, is offering you eternal life today in Christ. Will you receive it? Will you respond to Jesus' call? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. He reigns. And he is the judge who will keep his promises. The ones we like to talk about and the ones we don't. But he will be faithful to them all. And if you trust in his son today, he will be faithful to you that when you stand before this God of Daniel who reigns, you'll be accepted into heaven forever on Christ's righteousness, not your own. What a gift. What grace. For the believer, it calls us to be courageous. It calls us to live with resolve. And we're going to see that the rest of the time the Lord wills for us to be in Daniel together. But for today, let's thank him for his reign. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for your reign in our lives. Not to us, but to you be the glory. You are the God of the heavens and you do what you please. And it's kind of you to record these examples for us in your word so that we're strengthened in faith in Christ. As we go here from here today, let this song we sing now Strengthen us, build us, and equip us to live out those convictions for you. Amen.